You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hello and welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It is Wednesday, March 23rd, 2022. I'm Maggie Lake here with Darius Dale, founder of 42 Macro. Hi, Darius. Hey, Maggie. What's up? It's good to see you. Yeah, it's good to see you too. Um, and you know, we were just talking right before we came on air. Gosh, there's just so much going on every day with these markets. We saw big moves again today, uh, primarily in oil, right? We had a bigger than expected drop in U.S. oil inventories, talk of more sanctions, Russia throttling a pipeline, all combining the news about pricing in rubles, all combining uh, to send oil higher. WTI back to 114, Brent to 121. Um, we had the bond route continuing. Fed officials speaking today, multiple ones signaling, hey, we're coming comfortable with 50 basis points. Everything's on the table. Um, that U.S. 10-year briefly went above 2.4. It's amazing how quickly this is moving for people who don't always watch this market. But it did, does it look like it's coming down a little bit here, um, backing off that level as we go into the close. And of course, U.S. equities getting wrapped up in all of this down across the board here as we close the session. Um, what are you watching? I mean, what, what's top of mind for you since everything's moving? Yeah, no. So number one, it's this move in crude oil. Um, so I think we we're up another round, right around 5% uh, day over day. Uh, I think we're 20 up 20% uh, week over week. That's a massive move. To me, I think the, um, the sort of geopolitical tensions with respect to the Russia-Ukraine saga um, are heating up a little bit at the margins. Um, today, I thought there was an enormous, um, you know, kind of, you know, from a longer term strategic perspective, I thought there was an enormous headline that really needs to be unpacked. Um, Putin effectively told Gazprom, which surprised uh, a considerable amount of Russia, of, 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 of gas to your, uh, the your continental Europe. You know, I think there were roughly around, not maybe Gazprom, but Russia, somewhere around 30 percent of Europe's gas or 40 percent of Europe's gas. He said, don't accept payments in euros. Um, labeled uh, the U.S., the EU, uh, the U.K. Um, as sort of hostile territories and said, yeah. hey, look, we, we, we want to take payment in Russian rubles which effectively would amount to a way for them to circumvent sanctions. So um, this obviously is a signal, in our opinion, that Putin is digging his heels in, that we're going to be in this situation for a while, and that everything we thought about, you know, the impact of, of, of this conflict on global supply chains, particularly in the energy space, in the agriculture space, even in the metal space, um, all of that was actually true. It got priced in too quickly, but uh, those who bought the dip, like we did at 42 Macro, are definitely uh, feeling that, uh, are, are feeling good about that. Yeah. So so I guess, d does that mean that you, what does that do to your, your thought moving forward? Because I think a lot of people saw the speed that oil moved up, came back down. It's been consolidating a little bit. As you said, back now, does it look like this is a new run to new highs or are we in some kind of range here? And I know, I think it's really important. I'll just pause that question by saying everything I think we should talk about, you know, what your duration is here. Really short term, what does that mean? Are you looking medium term? I mean, most people don't want to do anything but do short term. So tell me about your time horizons with anything that you're, you know, any of these answers that you're giving today. Oh, yeah. And no, I had a, a brilliant conversation with, uh, with with Jack Farley over at uh, Ford Guidance yesterday. It'll be out that podcast will be out this weekend. But there, it was all about risk managing the different durations because, you yeah. know, the world we live in right now is a world of, uh, at the bare minimum, two durations, probably three. 
Uh, so from a short-term perspective, um, there's really no reason to be uh, short oil or short commodities. I mean, cl very clearly, you're having some supply disruptions. Um, you still have fairly robust demand across the, the the broader world. And so, you know, historically, even if you saw some demand destruction, you typically can see energy in particular that, you know, the energy space the, uh, continue to, um, to continue to appreciate in price. Um, you know, kind of into an economic slowdown, even even into recession. We saw that in the recessions, all the recessions in the 70s. We saw that in 2008 as well. We saw it in the 90s as well. So um, it's not like you have to sell oil on a demand destruction narrative. Um, so that means you can probably remain long of this type of exposure, uh, you know, kind of well into the summertime. Um, from, a, you know, when you think about the summertime, and we talked about this last week, I tweeted that out this, uh, this afternoon, you know, when you get into the summertime, right, one really core sort of tenant to the bull case and not just your commodities and um, really the bull case for broader risk assets is that growth is fine. You know, we've had a geopolitical uh, sort of, um, you know, kind of incident uh, kind of, you know, throw its, uh, you know, kind of really um, spook markets thus far throughout the year's date. And it's obviously not going anywhere anytime soon. But the reality is, you know, you look at growth statistics on a, on a trailing basis, whether you look at leading indicators like C, uh, composite leading indicators still north of 100 for most economies. Um, you look at obviously GDP in Europe and the U.S., you know, well above trend, you know, multiple deviations above trend in the most recent quarters. And PMIs are comfortably above, you know, 55 for most economies. Everyone who's in the levels oriented camp and what I mean by levels, things are good, things are bad. Those people are still very bullish because the data on the ground, the, the, the sort of lagging incident indicators are confirming that. The problem with that is that when you look at it on a forward leading indicator basis in terms of what we're projecting in our models, and you know, we certainly believe that by the time we get into the summer, that data will start to slow at a much more material pace and at a pace that really starts to open up a pocket of downside to the market. So you could see new lows on uh, things like the stock market and crypto um, as we progress throughout the summer. But, you know, kind of for now, I want to say at the most, maybe one or two months, you could have a, a pocket of reprieve because we just don't have the growth dynamics to support a big crash yet. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, Darius. But but what when you're looking at that? So we have this pocket of reprieve. Does it mean that you you know we're down we're down today? I'm looking over at, at some screens I have. We're down today. Do you in that window buy the dip opportunistically, or rather, do you look for uptrends to get out to start to lighten positions you haven't been able to so far because you know it's coming? You know that more sizable slowdown that's going to mean troubles coming in the summer. How do you play that? Well, I think you can play both, right? I mean, if you if you can, you know, so we talk about this in the program all together or all the mm -hmm. time, which is portfolio construction is the name of the game, particularly in an environment like this. We have so much volatility. It's, you know, it's easy to take advantage of that on the trading side, but you also have a core medium term to longer term fundamental view um, that's either bullish or bearish. We're obviously bearish. Um, so it's, you know, you definitely want to sort of think about, you know, organizing your portfolio around different durations. You know, we definitely have things we in our portfolio that we're long in terms of risk assets that we fully intend to be selling at some point over the next month or two. Um, and so what we're, we're trying to do is capture, uh, take advantage of what could be a window of opportunity here on the long side, uh, because we did come into this downside with elevated cash position. You know, we were uh, we did sell equities and other risk assets that, are, you know, fairly well going starting back to November of last year, December. Uh, we sold crypto November. We sold a lot of equities early February. We sold a lot of equity. So it wasn't like we needed to use the first bounce to sell cash. Well, there are some investors that might have to do that. Um, but, you know, it, we, I think we definitely saw, um, you know, a little bit of that today. But the reality is it, until you get a real big growth slowdown, it's going to be very difficult for the market to make new lows. 
and you and you're seeing this 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 idea that people are thinking that the economy is strong enough to hold out. I know you look at crowding. Is this where you're seeing that 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 show up that you feel like that there is not an overly bearish sentiment when it comes to equities? And I think we're talking about equities now, right? Yeah. So, uh, Brian, if you don't mind putting up that uh, crowding versus dispersion analysis. So, you know, this is one of the clues that we got to say, hey, look, the coast might be clear for now. And what we're looking at uh, in the chart on the left uh, of that crowding analysis is the sort of relationship between the deviation and skew uh, that's on the x-axis and, and the volatility risk premium in terms of how we calculate that on the y-axis. And, you know, typically what you find is that markets that, you know, that have elevated skew, you know, i.e. the consensus is, is either overly hedged or they're actually outright bearish on this particular exposure, you know, whenever you get into a situation where the volatility risk premium becomes negative as you are in that lower right quadrant, that tends to be a sign that a lot of the sort of near-term negativity is already priced in. You typically right. need to cover shorts in that kind of environment. Um, and that's exactly the environment where U.S. equities are, risk, uh, risk, uh, risk assets are in terms of the, the median of all the different exposures we track. U.S. equities are there, global equities are there, risk assets are there, even fixed income is there. And so we've yeah. seen a lot of damage and destruction to 60-40 style portfolios, and obviously risk parity is having one of their worst years on record. And a lot of that damage and destruction has come as a function of the market having to go from, you know, December, you know, the Fed might hike a couple times in 2022 to Fed's going to hike pretty much every meeting, maybe even get a couple 50 basis point hikes. And oh, by the way, we might get a trillion dollars of QT in the first year. And that's a big delta. That's a big delta from a policy rate uh, tightening standpoint that had to get priced into the markets. And now it's priced into the markets. And so now the next shoe to drop is, OK, what does all that tightening mean? What does this big uh, rise in crude and energy prices and food prices mean? We have to actually get to that point in the process where we start to see that show up in the data. I think that's really important because there is a lag, isn't there? I mean, so so to a certain extent, some of the you know the pain from commodities and food because it started before the the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We we've been talking about this and you've been pointing it out. Well, you know, from the fall, um, so we've seen that and and we can see what it's happening to prices at the pump as a result. But the the Fed the Fed situation is a newer regime we have to get our head around. Is that the lag that we're looking at before we start to see it hit the real economy sometime in the summer? Is that what you would be expecting? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they, this is a, that's a phenomenal question, Maggie. So uh, one of my favorite uh, jokes is, is kind of the making fun of the Fed when they go, well, monetary policy works on long and variable lags. You know, yeah. it takes me back to my days in the, you know, the, <laughs> on Prospect Street in New Haven, like going to these econ classes at Yale. I mean, like, what a what a wonky comment, right? Long yeah. and variable, like there's smoke coming out of the, the, the chimney. Like, what does that even mean? Um, that you think they know by now. <laughs> and so yeah. very clearly they do not know by now. And so the, the Fed is typically in these tightening cycles and they always break something, right? There's only been one tightening cycle in the history of tightening cycles that they didn't break anything. And that was 94. And obviously we had a lot more um, uh, organic growth potential in the U.S. economy back then. You know, the labor force was growing gangbusters. We had this thing called the Internet we were developing. You know, there was a lot of really positive stuff going on back then that we don't necessarily have going on now, not to the same degree. Um, yeah. And so with respect to the lag and when all this stuff shows up in the data, I happen to think in our models, I mean, again, you know, we're based on, based on our, 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 you know, forecasting our econometric tools. The models are saying it's about to show up in the data sometime in the next kind of three to four months. You know, at the beginning, you know, it'll get worse and worse as we progress throughout the back half of the year. But sometime around kind of late Q2 is where you would actually start to see a lot of the tightening that's been talked into the market. Because, by the way, poor guidance works in both directions. You know, when Fed's, yeah. you know, 
with their forward guidance on the um, you're going back to March of 2020 on the on the corporate uh, 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 bond purchases was really one of the catalysts that bottomed the market in that interval. Well, now their forward guidance every day since basically you know or, or December has been to tighten monetary policy, and we've okay. seen that priced into the Treasury curve. We've seen that priced in overnight index forwards. We've seen that priced into the euro dollar curve. We've obviously seen that priced into um, uh, a curve compression as well. And so, um, you know, we've definitely seen that in high yield uh, bond prices and yields. We see it in mortgage rates as well. The economy has suffered a decent amount of financial tightening already. Yeah, and you and we had housing data that you know you started to see a little bit of that. Although the supply demand you know um, balance is so off that it may take more time, as you're suggesting, for all of this to really start to put together a meaningful trend. Hey everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Since you're talking about where this is showing up, it's a perfect time, I think. We have a clip um, from Roger Hurst, who kind of breaks down sometimes these conversations that Ryle and Julian have um, in the Macro Insider when they're tossing back data back and forth, um, you know, slowing it down a little bit just to dive a little deeper into some of what they're talking about. And and one of the things he, he tackled uh, in this latest post was talking about is the yield curve behind the curve. Let's have a listen to what he said. Now, we talked about that yield curve. And I think last time I showed a yield curve, which was the five-year, 30-year, one-year forward. Well, actually, now part of the plain vanilla curve has just inverted just briefly. Remember, I said that um, on the Fed, we got the five-year part and the two-year part moving the most aggressively. Well, the five-year to 10-year part, so this is 10-year yields in the U.S., minus five-year yields, government bonds, has just nudged into negative territory, only just by minus 1.2 basis points but it is nonetheless a slight inversion of that curve. And if we sort of go in closer on that with this, you can see that you know, we've had this steep decline in the curve. And I think it was on the intraday basis, it got to minus 1.2. As we record this on Friday, it's got back up to about positive two, positive three, but it has inverted on an intraday basis. Now, I've said before, you can find any curve that will fit almost any narrative because there's so many different parts of the curve out there. But when we map the five-year tenure on the more traditionally used two-year tenure, they're pretty much going into inversions at the same time. So this one's inverted, even though the two-year tenure, that, that more traditional part, has still not quite got there. Is that firing the starting gun? Or are both of these actually behind the curve? Now, Darius, I know a lot of people have been looking at these or the flattening or inversion. Um, they haven't been sticking there, you know, long enough, I think, for people to really put down the hammer. But there's concern, as you're pointing out, that although the Fed's being really aggressive, they're going to break something. And the something that they're going to break is most likely the economy and push us into recession. That's the idea that maybe that's what the yield curve is telling us. Um, do you think are you looking at slowing growth? A moderation of growth, or are, is the risk of recession real? The risk of recession is definitely real. I mean, it's it's not. So, I mean, so we talked about this at the beginning of the year before any of the energy price spike happened, or you know, before you know we saw anything out of Russia, Ukraine that might have exacerbated confidence and you know supply chains globally. Um, you know, we you know we were already good, good. so. Let's take a step back. 
you know, the Bloomberg consensus, and I keep saying this at nauseam because they won't take down the numbers, but there's an expectation out there that the economy, both U.S., both domestically and globally, is going to grow comfortably above trend in 2022. Obviously, I think anybody can look around at the yield curve, look around at sector and style factor dispersion within the uh, equity market, equity and credit markets, and you could say that's probably wrong. You know, right now, as of as of today, Bloomberg consensus is expecting 3.5 percent U.S. Uh, GDP growth in 2022. That number is above the Fed's 2.8 target. That number is, you know, 150 basis points above our potential. It's even worse for the global economy. The economists expect to right around 4 percent growth for the global economy. That's about 300 basis points north of where potential GDP has been for the world over the last kind of five years prior to COVID. So there's a lot of sort of lofty expectation out there in terms of growth expectations. Obviously, corporate fundamentals are a derivative of that, um, you know, certainly in and around Wall Street. And the disappointment associated with that is likely, again, to commence sometime in late Q2 and persist throughout the summer and into the fall. And that's how you get that retrenchment. You know, that, that surprise is how you kind of speed up the process of moving to a recession. A couple things uh, I'll call out. Um, on the recession risk, if you look at the last couple of quarters uh, on GDP specifically, this is kind of a, a longer leading indicator. You know, inventories accounted for 90% of our growth in Q3 and 70% of our growth in Q4 of the headline figure. You know, we're, we're now starting to overbuild inventories. And usually um, in terms of like the most obvious kind of easy kind of recessions to call, um, are there always the inventory cycle, the manufacturing cycle? Those are the ones we have to have a correction in terms of the supply and demand for goods. That's we can see that building already, but we can also see the sort of um, again the financial conditions starting to tighten. I mean, if you look at uh, the average note yield on, on like the Bloomberg High Yield uh, a credit index, you know we're up about 260 basis points since July. Mortgage rates are up, you know, but right around 170 basis points over year over year. You know, these are big moves. You know, they're not we're not at places where you would see um, expect a recession over the near term. But we're moving at a speed and a pace that would suggest that recession risk should be pretty elevated like a year from now. Yeah. Um, good question from Bo. And this comes up a lot. Um, and we've got a couple variations of it. But let's start with the broader one. Um, with all the talk of 25, 50 basis point rate hikes, how many and how many are they going to do when? Wouldn't balance sheet reduction make a bigger difference at this point? Balance sheet reduction definitely makes a bigger difference from the perspective of asset markets. Um, you know, it's unclear the kind of how tight the linkage is between uh, asset markets and the, and the real economy is, you know, kind of at any interval. Um, it's a lot easier to sort of, you know, kind of run an econometric study on, on kind of changes in uh, financial conditions through the policy rate or, you know, changes in debt service ratios. Those things are, you know, more empirically observed. You know, the kind of financial conditions one is a little bit more or sort of the, you know, the asset markets uh, pipeline is a little bit less. It's a little bit more loose from an econometric standpoint, but we all know yeah. it matters. We definitely all know it yeah. matters. I mean, if you think about kind of the, you know, the median decline in S&P when the Fed is quantitative tightening into a growth slowdown is somewhere like 15 to 20 percent annualized. So that's a big yeah. deal. Um, and so yeah. that's the kind of uh, capital destruction that could actually obviously, you know, cause consumer spending to further underperform, uh, you know, kind of very elevated consensus expectations. Yeah, I was talking to, to to Ms. Schneider earlier, and she was she was uh, reading an article in Barron. She tweeted it out, by the way. So if you want to go check out a specific reference, but sort of suggesting an economist suggesting that the Fed take a, a a page from a playbook they used, I think back in the '60s or in another period where they didn't hike rates so aggressively, but they did use the balance sheet instead. Um, 
I, I, we've had no discussion. The, the, the Fed's rule, the Fed's line, rather, has been that we've got to do the um, interest rate hikes, get that going, roll off QE before we start doing QT. Is there a reason they wouldn't do it reverse and try the QT to see if that tightening of financial conditions has the intended effect without, um, you know, hitting the brakes hard and, and ratcheting up those interest rates? Yeah, so I'll start. Uh, there's a few things that uh, needs to be impacted in that, in that uh, question statement. So for starters, the Fed should not be taking any pages out of their 1960s playbook because whatever they did in 1960s gave us the 1970s, the worst decade mm -hmm. in U.S. economic so don't, history. Man, don't hold me to that because there are a lot of states <laughs> flying around. It might have been post-World War II, too. Oh, I, yeah. I have to go back and, and hear the right time. But the oh, idea gosh. was that, it, is, yeah. it, do, do they have the mechanisms? What would happen if they, they did the opposite, worked on the balance sheet first before they started getting aggressive, so aggressive with rates? Yeah, I mean, look, they, they, that would make a lot of, it's unclear to me why they're being so patient, um, you know. So if you think about this from a from a, uh, and I'll get back to the question on, on how many rate hikes will we get because yeah. I, I actually don't think that's a re relevant question. It's really about the time. Actually, I'll just address it now. The most relevant question is not about how many total rate hikes we get. Is how long can the Fed remain on a path to tightening? You know, the, that's that's the question for asset before markets. the economy weakens substantially before, or before they have a meltdown somewhere. More importantly, before the asset markets tell them to stop. Yeah. The markets will tell Powell to stop at some point before we confirm that we're in a recession. The Fed's not going to be hiking rates after the NBER has said the U.S. economy is in recession. We know that. Right. So it's, it's about market asset markets you know, having to communicate the, oh, my God, we're really close to the cliff. Stop pushing us uh, moment. And we do believe that moment is likely to come kind of in the fall, if not by the end of the year, um, in terms of the terminal downside we see for the S&P for the Fed put. As I mentioned last week, we we see a 30% peak to trough decline in the S&P for a variety of reasons. We don't need to unpack them again. Go watch last week's video yeah. um, as, as kind of the terminal destination, as the price on the S&P that will cause the Fed to realize, oh, no, wait, we can no longer tighten anymore. We're going to be successful in our drive to slow the economy. We no longer have to worry about inflation because it's about to go down anyway because we've overdid it. So, so where does that put us? Tim's asking, is the door still wide open for the big correction sub 4K SPX? Yeah, the, the door is, it's, it's, I would argue it's closed for the very immediate term. Um, right. We've seen a lot of the, you know, so the positioning dynamics in the options market no longer support uh, a big breakdown in, in, the, in, the, in the stock market um, at this particular juncture. Neither do the growth dynamics. I mean, you would have to have something really adverse come out of the geopolitical sphere to catalyze that kind of rush for protection that would you know push dealers back into a negative gamma state and really you know feed the market down upon itself you know to the you know kind of lower boundary of where um, a lot of put positioning already is which is somewhere around 4000 on the S&P you know it's obviously I'm not going to sit here and make geopolitical forecasts on this program I don't think anybody is qualified to do that so we should I don't think anybody can facing the situation we're facing the precipice yeah. of world war 3 I don't think anybody they can do an educated guess but I don't think anybody really uh, can game out what's going to happen here. Bingo. And so in the absence of understanding exactly what's coming down the pike next in the very immediate term from a geopolitical standpoint, we have to go back to the growth, inflation, policy, and positioning fundamentals. When you sum up everything in that in that matrix, in that traditional core macro risk management, you know, kind of uh, you can research matrix, you wind up in a state of, you know, look, there's not a lot of real near-term downside risk. You need the economy to be visibly slowing at a meaningful pace for the market to say, okay, no, wait, I'm scared. You need to have a proper growth scare uh, to open up the real downside in the market. And again, we think the earliest you're going to see the beginning of a process like that is kind of late Q2. 
We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Don asking from the RV site, um, in light of the inflation and Fed tightening, can you comment on whether or not you think bonds will still be a safe haven in the next, he's saying crash, let's say downturn starting May, June? Oh, that's a great question. So, uh, yeah, if, it is. It is a good one. That's yeah. the traditional thinking. Yeah. So there's a, there's a, that's a lot to unpack on bonds. And I'll start by cracking an egg on my face. I wish I actually had an egg. Uh, feeling as an idiot just being long bonds uh, year to date. It's just been a bad call, quite frankly. Um, yeah. I think it's you – know, anyway, anyway, let's move on from that. So let's, let's talk about where we are from here. Next play is my, my model here. So with respect to bonds, the problem with bonds here, there's twofold. Um, and, and actually, uh, Brian, if you don't mind putting up a chart, you know, there's kind of – the first chart is two charts I, I put together. There's one called the death of risk parity or kind of quote death uh, hyper uh, – sorry, quotation marks death. Um, that chart shows the blue line in that chart shows a trailing two-year correlation between uh, the long bond futures and the stock market. The red line in the chart is, is headline CPI. And what you find, and I found that other you know really smart analysts that I, I respect, um, you know, kind of you know have the same have come to the same empirical conclusion is that when you inflation somewhere around five percent or north of five percent, you tend to have a sort of positive uh, correlation between the stocks and bonds. I.e., they go up together, they go down together, and usually it's they're going down together. Um, and so, you know, we, now that we've been in this environment really since the late 90s, where inflation has been persistently below that, um, below that mean, uh, you've had an inverse correlation between stocks and bonds. And so obviously with inflation being, you know, just shy of 8% now and it's way past 8% in the March data uh, that we'll get in the second week of April, you know, we're definitely having this positive correlation between stocks and bonds. And so the question is, Will the growth slowdown that we are anticipating um, to materialize this year and, and ultimately the recession risks that we will continue to rise as the yield curve continues to price that in? But, oh, by the way, the three-month forward tens twos curve is inverted, by the way. <laughs> I'm thinking not, not enough people are talking about that. We're talking about 530s and stuff. No, 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 no. The one that matters is, is inverted on a three-month forward basis. So that, that the markets are already starting to signal in, in bond markets and obviously different models are signaling like ours that we're going to have a growth slowdown. It's our view that when the growth slowdown is more readily available and, and spooking the equity market in a material way, we do believe that inverse correlation will return. Um, but until then, that's just obviously a hypothesis given the current state. The other thing that's a big issue for the bond market right now, and certainly something I didn't see coming, I don't think anybody saw coming unless they saw the Russia-Ukraine <laughs> invasion yeah. or war coming, which is the European fiscal response um, to the sort of twin crises that they're having across the pond. Obviously, they're having an energy crisis, you know, with Russia being such a core contributor to their uh, energy imports. Um, and they're obviously having a defense crisis with, you know, basically having to reactivate NATO um, in a material way. Um, and so if you put up the chart, um, Brian, U.S. versus Eurozone uh, inflation surprises, um, that's what we show in the blue line in the top panels, the U.S. inflation surprise index is basically been trending at, you know, roughly around its all-time highs since July of last year. But the red line in that top panel is the more important chart to look at, or the more important plot to look at. That's the European uh, Eurozone Inflation Surprise Index. I mean, that thing is about as bullish as a chart you ever see. Yeah. You know, so the, the inflation momentum, the surprise factor and momentum has been significantly worse than it has been in, in Europe than it has been in the U.S. And obviously, that's all we talk about over here, right? 
You can't you can't have a conversation in the United States of America without lamenting about inflation, gas prices, food prices, et cetera. Well, guess what? It's orders of magnitude worse over there in Europe. And partially as a function of, you know, their you know, their own supply chain dynamics and their own dysfunction over there. But more importantly, you're also having this sort of this impact from the from the conflict is creating more of an inflationary shock to them than it is to us and the rest of the world. And so as a function of that, you're starting to see rumblings among European policymakers about, okay, how do we deal with this? How do we give uh, consumers more money and businesses more money to deal with some of these rising price shocks? How do we pay for more um, integration of, of, of global energy supplies and you know to excommunicate Russia? You know how do we pay for more defense? And you're you're you know, they're talking about you know some pretty sizable numbers are already starting to be thrown around on the orders of magnitude of like two trillion euro in terms of you know the kind of fiscal standing program that can deal with this. The reason I bring all this up and taking it back to the discussion about uh, U.S. Treasury bonds, which is you know, if, if that de sovereign debt repricing that we saw in Europe as a function of, oh, my God, we're about to get a whole heck of a lot more supply. If that sovereign debt repricing is not done, then the probability that Treasury bonds are acting as a, you know, you know, sort of a, you know, a positive or, you know, a good hedge to um, equity market risk, you know, cryptocurrency market risk, et cetera, the probability that is a good hedge is lower. Um, yeah. If that pricing repricing process is done by the time we start to get into the more higher volatility state of the market, then it's more likely that treasury bonds will be an adequate hedge. So um, I wish I had a better answer on that for the viewer, but we're definitely thinking about the, the, all the right circumstances to, to get well, to that. that. That's it. And, and, and keeping an eye on the correlation between that, I think, is, is, is hugely important, uh, which, which I think brings up. So if, you, if that's unclear and people are thinking about now being concerned, a question from Daniel on YouTube, what's your view on gold? So does oh, gold, and I, we, we broadly have heard people say well, commodities are the new safe haven, but he's specifically asking about gold. Yeah, raging bullish. I mean, again, going back to what we started the program with, which is what Putin said today, and I think it's a very meaningful statement. Um, again, it's it's meaningful in the sense that it seems like he's digging his heels as opposed to you know uh, acquiescing. Yeah. Um, but more importantly, it's a step away from this global dollar hegemony system that we're all used to and been accustomed to, and it's. It's really benefited, um, you know, certain pockets of the the, the, the American society uh, for an extended period of time. Not all, but certain pockets. That's a big step. And you know, as long as you know other central banks, and again, because it's not, we we I think we live in this myopic sort of world where we assume everyone agrees with what we're doing to punish Russia and to chastise Russia. You know, but yeah, I think the average person generally does, right? I, I certainly don't know anyone that is thinks uh, Putin is making a, a smart choice here. However. There are other, you know, economies and countries and, and societies that have different, you know, long-term strategic objectives. You know, does India want to follow us into the rabbit hole of punishing Russia, even though they get a decent amount of their imports from Russia? Does China want to do that? You know, these are some pretty big societies. Does Brazil want to do that? I mean, that's a decent chunk of global population and global GDP right there um, mm -hmm. that may not, you know, kind of be, you know, fully gung-ho with the Western response to this crisis. And yeah. so if you think about that, you know, those are types of central banks that say, hey, look, Maybe we don't want to distance ourselves from Russia. Maybe we don't want to risk the sanctions from the U.S. You know, maybe we do want to do buy a little bit more gold and diversify our foreign exchange reserves, right? If the world is moving to a state where there's less trade settled in dollars, and right now about half of all global trade is settled in dollars, if we move to a state where less trade is settled in dollars, then guess what? You don't need as many dollars in your FX reserve account. Boom. Yeah.
Hard to do, very complicated, and not clear. They like any of their options. I would say is probably a better a better way to uh, d to categorize it. Um, and they're tough ones. We have a, a great question from Mashu asking on the RV site: What are the leading indicators of a shift to defensives and shorts? Uh, well, I, I'm not sure I fully understand the question, but I, I'll, I'll interpret it. I'll answer it the way I interpret it. The sort of leading indicators that you would see to to to, to cause the market to make that pivot, well, yeah. they've already they've already taken place. I mean, you go back to um, you go back to where we've been from an economic cycle standpoint. The world has been in a globally synchronized slowdown from a leading indicator perspective since the summer of last year. I mean, I mean, I mean, U.S., Europe, China. Actually, Europe joined us and uh, joined the slowdown back in, in Q3 of last year. So, there's been a globally synchronized slowdown. Now, growth has still been above trend throughout this deceleration process. So, there's been no real worry and panic in financial markets from a uh, absolute return perspective. But you've certainly seen that in sector and style factor dispersion. You know, the market really shifted to um, kind of defensives. You know, going back to Q4 of last year, and defensive leadership continues to sort of dominate. Um, when you look at uh, the sector and style factor dispersion, um, one thing we going back to that uh, crowding dispersion chart we, we highlight, you know, it's been pretty consistently defensive throughout the year, really going back to, to Q4 of this year. Right now, what's happening, um, you know, I think this is kind of one thing that's really corroborating our, our medium to longer term views. If you look at the bottom of that dispersion chart, and that's the chart on the right where we show month over month sharp ratios as a proxy for kind of, you know, the hot money flows of, you know, the institutional finance community, you know, the pod shops, if you will, for those of you who kind of know the, the lingo, you know, we track these, this as a, as a function of their flows to see, okay, where are the quote unquote smartest guys and gals in the room flowing their assets into, flowing their assets out of? Well, we're seeing a lot of short covering. That's obvious. You know, that's pretty clear from the, the most recent uh, spike we've got off the lows of last week. But what's not obvious, and I think most investors probably don't realize this, is the market is selling U.S. growth expectations pretty hard. Um, so if you look at the lower quintile, that's kind of the lower half of the chart there on the right. You know, home builders are, are at the bottom in the lower quintile, and there's about mm. 60 uh, U.S. equity sectors and style factors and FANG names represented in the sample. We're just showing the upper quintile relative to the lower quintile. You know, you have home buildings there. You got uh, consumer staples, financials, airlines, leisure, hospitalities, hotels. Aren't these all the things you would be long if the economy was about to have a post-pandemic boom? Yeah. The market is selling those things because it understands that we are, A, in a cyclical slowdown, and B, that cyclical slowdown might actually intensify uh, in the back half of the year. Before we go, I have to ask you a, a, a phenomenon that's going on and just what you make of it. it amid all of the, the risks that's out there, people rightly asking for safe havens, how to think about this, keeping duration short, being nimble. What's going on with GameStop and AMC? GameStop's up 60% this week, AM AMC up 42% in a week. Do you have any idea what's happening here? Why are we seeing them move? No, well, I mean, I, so obviously, <laughs> those are Short-term gains, people looking for gains where they can get it? It just seems- Yeah, no, the, the gamma squeeze party is back, uh, back in full force. And to me, that's a short-term bullish indicator, right? If we're taking that kind of risk, it's yeah. very clear that financial conditions haven't tightened enough to prevent that. So, you know, you think about what that probably means for crypto over the very near term. 
um, that's probably a positive signal. But uh, I can't get into specifics on GameStop and AMC specifically. It's, it's hard enough yeah. covering the global macro no, economy. Exactly. <laughs> covering everything else we covered. But, but yeah. great, observation, great observation about a short term, you know, there being some short term, at least appetite for risk, right, in the, in the very short term, um, which is what we've been talking about. Darius, great stuff as usual. Um, these are really complicated markets. So, so appreciate your insight and all your good chart work today. Um, and thanks, as always, for the for the great questions, everyone. Um, Real Vision Daily Briefing um, will be back, of course, tomorrow. Ash is going to be here with Tommy Thornton, which will be great. And the crypto gathering is happening. If you haven't checked it out, um, it's been happening all day. There's still two more days left of the event. Some fantastic conversations. If you'd like to join us, uh, the details are at www.realvision.com forward slash crypto gathering. Again, going to be going on Thursday and Friday with a live end Friday for any of you who are in the New York area. Um, we're all going to be in there uh, at the Roxy. So we hope to see you there. In the meantime, Darius, thanks so much. And for all of you, take care and good luck out there. Yeah. Thank you, Maggie. Appreciate you. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, Head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.